Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to SpeechTherapyPD.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes, and we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, And in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B Y T E because it does. It did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo. <laughs> Hi folks. And welcome to first bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's topic and guest are both in a field that confused me and worried me for years. Yeah, I said it. It worried me. Well, why worry, Michelle? I bet you're thinking, well, easy, because today we are covering feeding and swallowing in the public schools, and you bet I have worried over this. 
this isn't really addressed in my geographic area. I'm kind of in, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a desert. So because most of the school districts surrounding me don't have staff to treat the students' feeding or swallowing impairment during the day, and I can't treat them after school hours because I have to get home to my own two tiny humans and their copious amounts of homework, well, the patients that I was treating either have to lose their home-based services or they have to leave school early in order to continue. And let's be honest, both of those options stink. Stink, I say, because I feel and humbly suggest that if those are our only two options, then we are failing that kiddo and every other kiddo in my state. And I am sure that many of you out there listening feel exactly the same way. So I am humbled to introduce and eager to learn from the esteemed Emily M. Homer, NACCC SLP, ASHA Fellow, and author of Management of Swallowing and Feeding in Schools. This amazing colleague of ours has dedicated her career to addressing these exact concerns and fears and dispelling them, and then bringing joy and functional strategies to helping students be set for success within their LEA for their unique feeding and swallowing needs. And for those of you that don't know what LEA means, it um, stands for a local education agency. So without further ado, um, uh, Happy early Hanukkah and Christmas to all of us. Let's get started with tonight's fed, fun, and functional episode. Emily, how did you do all these amazing things? And this is so exciting. And can you come to South Carolina and do it here? <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm always looking for ways that I can share the information uh, to therapists in the schools. And, and also early intervention plays a major part of it. Um, and so thank you for this opportunity. I, I really am uh, looking forward to it. Well, when you said yes, I like shrieked and then like almost dropped my laptop. Um, <laughs> folks, if y'all haven't um, checked her out, um, please go to the um, ASHA continuing ed page and you will find that she has co-authored the best practices for um, feeding and swallowing in the schools. Um, uh, and it's a CEU that you can take. Um, and Emily, you don't know it, but when I travel um, the nation lecturing and there's a school SLP in the room, I always reference them back to you and to your resources available. And oh, thank you. Because it's, but it's the, um, it's the framework for the litigation. And I've even had yes. a couple of school SLPs say that they were able to get their schools to pay for your course. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Um, I wish somebody would pay for my courses. <laughs> like, yeah, I do. I really enjoy going to school districts and helping them to get started. That's something that has been very positive. Okay, wait. So you're telling me that people can contract you to come and train their school district? Yes. Yes. I, I, that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I worked in the school systems for 43 years. Um, and most of my 43 years was spent uh, in a a speech and hearing administrative role as assistant coordinator and then coordinator of a program with about 150 SLPs. So it was a fairly large district. Um, so about two years ago, I retired and really wanted to make more time for working directly with school systems uh, to help them, you know, to navigate this because it is a fairly complex uh, thing to address in the school system. It, okay. Well, I'm <laughs> 
Yes. No, I'm literally writing this right down um, yeah. right now um, that I need to follow up with our president-elect of our state association. So if you hear a phone call from Skisha, you'll know where that came from. Um, he, he, he. Okay. You have no idea. You just like made my heart like absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. So everybody out there, check her out. All right. So um, before we squirrel and I end up booking you for Skisha, how about um, we regroup me and get back on track and ask you our first question? Would that be good? Sounds good to me. All right. So most of our listeners either work in early intervention or in an ECSE classroom. Um, There's a lot of folks out there that may work PRN for early intervention, but have like a full year round job with the public schools. So we kind of have a hybrid community. And there's also a fair amount of parents that listen. Um, So on that note, it's hard in our hearts to see our patients receiving feeding and dysphagia services in their natural environments. And when they transition to their LEA at three, like two and a half or three, whenever that process starts, they're often told it's not an offered service there. So with that, and I've even had school districts say, well, it's not covered by IDEA. And is that true? And how come some places that you have gone and mentored cover it? And why do other places not address it? That's a very good question. So let me start at the very beginning. Um, about 23 years ago, uh, in my district in Louisiana, which is St. Timothy Parish Schools, uh, we saw a need for children who were having some issues with swallowing and, and feeding at school. So we formed a committee and we were able to start a team. We came up with the team procedure. Um, at that time, it turns out that we were the only district doing this, which we really weren't aware of, uh, but soon did become aware of. And so uh, since then, we've been doing this now for 23 years. And from the very beginning, we have been sharing our procedure, of course, all the way through the line, you know, through the years, we have uh, improved it and tweaked it. And, you know, consulted with our school board attorneys uh, when needed, when situations came up. So, you know, at this point, the, the procedure is very solid. But understand, most at, back only 23 years ago, nobody was doing it at all, okay? It was not being formally addressed. Um, so the problem is that most districts right now are not recognizing the need. Um, but there's many reasons uh, why they don't recognize that need. One of the main reasons is they're just not aware that it's being addressed and that it falls under health as a related service in providing FAPE as part of IDEA. So you mentioned IDEA, and it, it absolutely is in IDEA as a as health as a related service. And that um, so that's something that they're not making that connection, and yet they're providing other health services such as uh, you know treatment for diabetes and seizure disorders and things of that sort. You know, so somehow they're just not really. And and I think part of that reason, I would have to say, might be because they don't know what it is. They don't know what dysphagia is, the the term. And so and then there's a real fear, you know, dysphagia and aspiration and choking. Um, So it's it's something there. And that's my second reason is that they're they're really fearful of it. They're fearful of due process and of liability and. Many times they really look at it as this is a medical condition and not an educational one. Okay, so uh, 
Another reason that districts uh, often are not addressing it or choose not to is that it ha- they don't understand what it is. And SLPs who work in school systems often don't have the knowledge and skills, training or experience to address it. Um, so they maybe have had training in graduate school, but maybe worked in the schools for 10 years and have never used those skills. So there's not a confidence that they're able to do it. And so there's a real reluctance for them to pursue this because they don't feel comfortable themselves. And then finally, it is a complex disorder. uh, And addressing it in the schools really has to be done with extreme caution and care. It's not something that an SLP can just say, oh, well, I know what to do for this child, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to set up a plan and I'm going to do it. Um, because there are so many ways that um, that could go wrong, you know, where either the people feel maybe there's not something in place for training classroom staff or preparing the uh, correct modification of the diet, you know, so it really needs to have a procedure, a set procedure that has, you know, forms that go with it in order to really add some of that redundancy, which keeps children safe at school. Um, so I can tell you change comes slowly. <laughs> it really does. And if yeah, there's one it thing, does. yeah, there's one thing people often do not like, and that is change, you know? So, you know, I think that that might be why we see little pieces of the districts. We're still climbing this hill and it's pretty steep still, but you know, ASHA has embraced it and that's a real positive. And I got that a new change. What's that? It, it seems like a newer change to me that ASHA has embraced it. It only seems like, like I was in grad school like 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. when I was in grad school, it was like the two mi- didn't mix. There was like right. medical SLPs and then school SLPs. And then somewhere like five years ago, it seems like, hey, we actually should be doing this. So Am I right in thinking that that's a newer change? I'm trying to think what year it was that we worked on the guidelines for swallowing and feeding in schools. I I think that was like the real beginning of ASHA embracing the school-based swallowing and feeding. And that document is no longer available. It's been blended into the practice portal. Um, But I, I think it was at least 10 years ago that we did that. So it is relatively new. And I, I, sense a real commitment by ASHA in the articles that are being uh, provided in the leader and in their journals. And, you know, the schools conference almost always has something on swallowing and feeding in the schools. And so I, I, I sense that they're really beginning to really embrace it and push it. Um, but, but the thing is, you know, and, and you said, you know, some districts just don't do it. The, the problem is that they're, they, they do need to do it, that they are required by law to do it. And, you know, that's the part that, you know, is coming to each of them. You know, uh, IDA does require that school districts provide this. And it was, you know, based on the Supreme Court decisions that uh, shaped health as a related service, which would be provided by a nurse or other qualified professional. Um, and that was uh, in 1996, the Supreme Court said in, in the case Garrett, uh, that um, if the service is necessary for a child to remain in school and be able to access their curriculum, 
and it doesn't have to be provided by a physician, that then the schools have the responsibility to provide it. So that would definitely be dysphagia and feeding disorders would definitely fit in because if a child is undernourished, how is it educationally relevant? Well, if they're undernourished, they're not going to have the attention or the stamina to access their curriculum. If they're eating is not safe. If they're aspirating and they're getting sick and they're absent a lot, every time they're absent, they are missing their curriculum. They are not being given faith. Um, And if they take 45 minutes to an hour to eat their lunch, they're missing a good 30 to 40 minutes of instruction time. So again, even there, we are not uh, providing faith for them. So I think that it's an issue that it, it's all in how you look at it. But some of these districts just haven't really looked into it. It hasn't come up. And so I think that's something that needs that will be happening more for sure. Another reason is uh, the USDA school lunch program, which we don't often think about that, but our cafeteria program is a federal program. And that federal program requires that, you know, school systems provide a nutritious lunch for their students. Can we modify their diets there? I mean, if they get school lunch, is the school legally responsible for altering the diet? I mean, I know we're we're transitioning over to IDSI, but if going on the NDD standards... Would the school be responsible for offering pureed foods? No, not not in that way. Okay. If you said yes, I was like, my mind would have just exploded. (laughs) I could kind of hear that. Um, Okay. So no, here's here's the thing. They do have a obligation to make modifications for special needs students if the child needs it in order to access the school lunch they're serving. So in a sense... Yes. Uh, now they need to get. Uh, they need to get. Speech pathologists do not need, and school teams do not need to get a physician referral or physician script to modify. You know, to ch- recommend a modified diet. But the cafeteria program needs a prescription for school modification form signed, so that they can receive their funding, and so. We have that obligation to let them know what those modifications would be, and then they get it signed. And the reason they do that is to ensure that they have uh, the same nutritional standards. So if you pull out a protein, they put in a a substitute with a protein. So the USDA uh, school lunch program does have some obligation to providing a school meal that uh, children can actually access. So that's another reason. And of course, uh, an, another reason is uh, that SLPs and OTs and school nurses and PTs, we all have an ethical responsibility to do what we can to keep children safe and healthy at school. So all of those are reasons why districts really need to get on board and start working on this. Um, but again, it's it takes a while. And the districts that really start doing this do it often because there is a demanding parent that knows the law and then they that's have what it boils down to i feel like times, that- now in our case we were proactive and i really recommend being proactive it's the way to go it's a lot less uh, uh scary and you can just get it all done and and then children are safe and parents are happy not always 
but sometimes <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> and um, and then the other reason is that there has been an active, knowledgeable SLP and or OT who have approached their district. And I run into these people all the time. They call me and say, you know, I really want to get this going in my school. What should I do? You know, so it, those are the two reasons that I find that school districts have really started uh, addressing it. So it's going to it's a slow process when you look at it that way. We have a um, <clears throat> we have a school district, and I fielded questions on it when I was on the board here. But we had a school district um, threaten litigation against the families for taking their child out of school early to go to feeding therapy, hmm. and the kid only had it was um, on the grounds of truancy because they had like a really strict truancy policy, and if you left early or you came late, like so many times. Um, and the kid had therapy like twice a week and would miss last period of the day to go to like a three o'clock appointment. And, um, it was, it was very, um, it was very frustrating because I treat, I mean, I do home community-based feeding and swallowing therapy. This is my bread and butter. And I was like, they cannot do this to this family. This family needs to request a meeting with their you know, school district director and bring this to her attention. If the school district cannot offer these services, the child has to eat more than I think the kid only had four or five foods in the, their diet altogether. And um, that, but that's... That's where we are in the world of the world yeah. down here. So, yay. yeah. I think the key word in what you just said right now, uh, Michelle, is that um, if they don't provide the services, because mm-hmm. we, in my district, we've had those situations where parents want to pull them out for ABA therapy or they want to pull them out for something else. And it is a question of faith. The district has a responsibility to educate children, and they have a responsibility for those children to, to be in school and to, you know, attend school as, as much as, you know, whatever their standards are. So I do understand where the district comes from when they say, you can't be pulling your child out every week this much because they're missing some of their curriculum. And we, you know, we have an obligation to provide that. Um, but the, the question is, you know, if the child needs the service and the school district is not providing that service, then I think that's the key point there, honestly. Um, if the school district were providing the swallowing and feeding uh, services, then I, I would have a hard time justifying taking a child out of school for it for additional for additional services. Yes, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah. But they, they weren't touching it in that particular district. So right. um, yeah. Okay. All right. So this topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, and I mentioned right before we started that I have a little guy that the family is um, doing everything they can to get me to be allowed to go into the school district to be there for lunch. Um, to work on starting therapy there um, because they don't have this as an option. And we've made so much progress that I'm just, my gut wrenches and clenches just thinking about um, backsliding because he's made so much progress, but um, I want to go there. It's a great school district. I want to convince the school district that LEA to start covering pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And like, I don't know what I'm doing. I worked in Virginia as like an SLPA-ish back in the day before like they had 
real SLPA outlines. Um, and we definitely didn't do feeding and swallowing in that school district when I was there like a lifetime ago. But what, where, where do I start? Where do these people start? What's, I have like the longest question in the world. Like what's the legal framework? What's, wh- when do they push in? Who's on the team? Can, and my big question is, can a school district, can an SLP in the school district make referrals to the medical community? Because I mean, like I can, cause I'm outside clinician, but what if it was a school SLP and she was like, Hey, I want to do feeding, but this kid hasn't had a modified in like three years and they have a G tube and we need a modified, like right. oh. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of questions. It was. <laughs> I fly really fast. I'm sorry. Okay. My ADD ADHD is showing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this question I think needs to be answered in two different ways. Okay. Go. Um, the first way, which is the easiest one to answer, so we'll start with that one, is when a child is transitioning from EI to uh, the public school setting, um, what can you do, even when they don't address swallowing and feeding, to make this transition work for your children that have been addressing it and doing well? Um, so I, I think, first of all, to try to go in there, um, with professional respect. And that may sound obvious, but there have been, I have seen cases where that doesn't happen. Um, So the school-based SLPs uh, often, like I mentioned previously, do not necessarily have the knowledge and skills to address swallowing and feeding. Okay. Um, It has not been in their scope of practice in the schools. And it probably, in most cases, currently is not in the scope according to their program at their district, okay? So they may be a little resistant because their district does not have something in place. But the, the early intervention uh, therapist has uh, an ethical obligation to make sure that they know this information, that the district knows this information, especially in the case where it's a safety issue. Yes. Um, so you, I would suggest approaching it from Number one, with the team that will be working with the student to begin with, uh, from a concern for the student focus, okay, and the continuation of service. Um, so if the therapist and and I and you know when you're talking to him, you can very nicely ask what if they've had experience with swine and feeding, how do they feel about that? Does the district do it, which you of course know the answer. Um, and if they say they do not have the training experience, and I would suggest asking to speak to the coordinator of speech or the lead therapist or whoever heads related service, every district's a little different, to determine if there is a therapist in that district who you could talk to about the student's needs. There's a good chance most districts have someone who has worked in a hospital setting or who has you know, some experience with swallowing and feeding in a different setting. So you want to get to that person so that you can talk to them about the things about this particular student that have you concerned about them entering school. Okay. Okay. The next thing you can do is provide the school district with a very clear and concise swallowing and feeding plan that outlines how to safely feed the child at school. So you're going to outline the needs and the concerns such as who 
they're going to have to have trained classroom staff because this child needs monitoring during all meals for safety. That um, there's going to need to be a trained and experienced SLP to monitor the implementation of the plan and to collaborate with the classroom staff on changes as they occur. There needs to be a trained OT who can provide adaptive equipment if those are the child's needs and feeding tools to facilitate self-feeding. And in many cases, we need a physical therapist to position the student for optimum feeding and a school nurse to monitor the health. So it's definitely a team effort, but school systems employ every one of those professionals. Uh, Almost every district has SLPs, OTs, PTs, and nurses. And so they have built in a team that they can uh, access, do they know. You're having a child that already has these concerns. They all need to be aware of that. Offer to train the team on the current plan. In this situation, you would want to work towards safe feeding for when the students start school and maybe not focus right immediately on the therapeutic intervention, which is very important. Improving a child's skills are important, but when it comes to the public school setting, you want to at least establish some safety uh, for that child. Uh, And then talk to the parents about the importance of continuing the swallowing and feeding plan in the school setting and um, for them to follow up with that. Uh, When you think about it, our children eat, many of our children eat two meals a day at school. They get off the bus and they go immediately to breakfast and then they also have lunch and they may have a snack or two during the day. So there's a lot of eating going on at school. So if a child has a safety issue, we want to make sure that district knows exactly what's going on. And um, if they choose not to do anything, well, then that is an ethical issue and a legal issue. I have to, I feel much better because that's what we did a year ago because that little guy I've treated for a year and a half, just shy of. And so we set that up, met with the IEP team at the start of last school year, set like a good program in place for them to feed him and then transition to feeding himself. Um, And then over the summer when he just like took off, It'll be the first time. And the SLP over there, she's, um, I know at that particular, she's amazing. Like I joke and tease that I can't teach phonology or articulation. I mean, I know I'm a speech therapist, but like, I don't really do that. (laughs) So like my own kid was in therapy for Arctic and phonology. And like, I guarantee I will make a stutter worse because I could never do that even when I attempted to do that. So I don't address that at all, but she does a really, really good job at it. And so we were sitting around the IEP meeting and she goes, you do the thing you do and I'll do the thing I do. I was like, yeah, because I can't do that. She's like, see, we're all helping each other here. But I mean, it was, you know, self-deprecating humor at its best in the middle of an IEP meeting. But it it was nice because when I, and folks, if when you're the EISLP and you come in, they were tense and nervous and folks will be tense and nervous, especially when you're the subject matter expert on something that's so foreign from what they do. The second somebody starts talking about like emergent literacy and embedding literacy, I am completely overwhelmed and just say, yes, ma'am, I don't do that. I know who does. I can connect you to the person, but that's overwhelming to me. And I am a speech pathologist, but that's not in my wheelhouse. I won't treat that. 
So like you said, go with grace, go with kindness. And this particular mom, I mean, how Southern are we? She brought in baked goods that day just to celebrate like a really awesome IEP meeting, even before the IEP meeting had started. So um, if you don't bring the donuts, maybe the parents can bring the donuts, but that made for a good transition, I thought. So yeah. It definitely does. Now, the concern is that when there's a child transitioning and it's it's a clear safety issue. Yes. Um, yes. And, and so then that becomes a very difficult situation when a district does not have a procedure in place. Do you and, have, I'm sorry, do you have ever see where they don't even want to do feeding tube feeds in the school districts? No, I don't think that's a problem. I think that um, they they will do feeding tubes. Absolutely. It'll either be, depending on the state and the regulations, either the school nurse will actually do the tube feedings or they can designate someone to do it. But I have never in all the districts I've talked to heard of anyone not agreeing to that. You know, so there's, there's that. But then the next level is a child that needs their diet modified. And, you know, there's actually been uh, several uh, state courts, uh, court cases that have addressed things like food modification and hospitalization for uh, aspiration uh, related to how the child was eating at school. And in all of those cases, school districts lose. Uh, one district in, uh, I don't have it in front of me, uh, but one district, I think it was in New Hampshire, refused to produce the modified, um, I think they needed a puree diet or whatever. And they said they couldn't do that. And they went to court and the court ruled with the parents that the the district had to provide that diet. In another court case, a child uh, was hospitalized for aspiration and the court held the district responsible for that. Did they have um, somebody not on the plan feeding the child? Is it right? They okay. did not have a plan. Yeah. So okay. uh, right now, the court cases that I'm aware of uh, have all consistently uh, ruled in favor of the parents and in favor of the school having to address the special diet, the modifications. So what happens with state courses, cases like that, is that they set precedent. And that means that when another district gets sued, the attorneys are going to look for cases that have already happened and been ruled on. And these cases will come up and it'll be fairly clear that this is where it's going, that they really do need to provide these special diets or whatever to address this. Okay. So then I, I get stuck in my, I regularly recommend seeking out referrals to ENT and GI, or we haven't had an instrumental and we clearly need one, or the kids head to toe eczema and gets incredibly congested right after they down their milk. And I mean, it's cut and clay, like clearly, a milk allergy, right? But we have to get them to the specialist. And because it's me, myself, and I in a private practice, I can reach out, contact the physician and make the referrals. And what I have had, I have had school SLPs say, because of IDEA, the school district will have to pay for any referral. And then I've had school SLPs out of state in New York say, no, they have insurance for that. Like I can make referrals. 
So where is the law on that? Okay. Um, in, in a public school system, when we make a recommendation, we are then responsible for that recommendation. So we're not able to say, well, you know, we're going to give this child speech therapy three days a week, but we recommend that he gets another two days of therapy privately. If we say that, then we have to provide five days a week of therapy. Anytime we make a recommendation, we, we are responsible for that recommendation. Okay. Um, What about if the school nurse makes the recommendation? Now, if a nurse, if it's a medical thing and the nurse, uh, yes, they definitely can say, you know, check out a, uh, you know, uh, gastroenterologist. I think he might have a GERD or something. Yeah, they can do that. Uh, For modifies, though, we really approach those a little bit differently in my district when we, and in the procedure that I advocate for, uh, we have a process in place for making those referrals. Um, we work with the parents to secure a script from the physician, and then our clerical staff sets up the swallow study, and um, the team leader, which is usually the SLP, will attend the swallow study with the parents and the child. That's and amazing. To make sure, we want to make sure that our questions are answered. Because it's very difficult to get a child to a swallow study, especially in a school district. And once we get them there, we, we want to get the information we need and not have them to have to go again with more radiation or whatnot. So um, that is part of our procedure. Uh, the other referrals for other health issues would, I think, go through the school nurse. I think you're absolutely right about that. Okay, because I've had... I mean, like I've had so many kids that were quote unquote picky eaters. And when we actually got down to it, or they had a lot of emesis and have one little guy that is supposed to be discharged from the hospital today and his stool was so backed up, um, it, it pushed his lungs upwards and he had a abscess on his lungs and, um, spiked a fever, whole nine yards, pneumonia, it's been bad. And we've noticed that He'll throw up more and um, consistently uh, be more of a quote unquote picky eater. And meanwhile, mom's having to run like he we're not pooping unless I give him milk a mag, blah, blah, blah. And we were like, you need GI consult. And so I, I know for a lot of the kiddos that we see, I just worried school SLP can't say that, but the school nurse can. So I like this. We can get the kid where they need to get to without the school district footing. Now we can, we can talk to physicians and feeding therapists and whatnot, but we have to have permission from the parents. We have a, have to have a signed release of information. So we're not able to talk to any physicians or uh, private practitioners without parent permission. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know because that was super stressful. But, um, okay, so then who in the district? Okay, so for my little guy, last year we were working on just self-feeding the diet that he was safe on, right? So when we went in, we talked about – and that little kiddo um, also has um, diabetes, so we have to – the school nurse was already majorly involved in advance. So we talked about how we're working on increasing hand-to-mouth and we went from accepting maybe five five spoons at a time at the start of the year. He would feed himself five bites, and that was it for the duration of a meal. 
to at the end of the school year, it'd be anywhere from 40 to 60% of snack and lunch, which was like phenomenal, right? Um, Took us nine months to get there, but we got there. And for that team, we talked with um, the parapros, the teachers, and he wouldn't go into the cafeteria because of um, reverb and auditory stimuli. Um, Even the nurse was trained. So like anybody who was a regular person um, in his normal day to day, we educated and discussed with. uh, And luckily for us, they never had a situation where like everybody was out at the same time and it was a room full of subs. But who should we also add into these teams? Who should be who's appropriate to be trained? Okay, so on that um, case study that you just talked about, mm-hmm. um, if if you're talking about feeding independence and who knows, you know what to do and who doesn't, and uh, teacher and para both being absent or something, that's one thing. If it's it's a matter of self feeding you know, a day where they're maybe a little clunky self-feeding, that's okay. If it's a question of safety mm-hmm. and both of the main feeders are absent and the only people who know how to safely feed the child are absent, then that's a very serious problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the things that we have to look out for in school systems that they don't look at. They don't have any, that private, uh, that early intervention therapists do not have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So we have to worry about that when that child steps foot on our campus, they're going to be eating a whole meal and we're going to be responsible. Our district is responsible for that child's safety. Um, so that's why I really work so hard to get districts to adopt a, a procedure, a set procedure that is used with every single child that has a swelling and feeding disorder. So that from the very beginning, every step is covered and it is, it really, there's some redundancy in it so that we are absolutely sure that children are safe at school. That's, that's our goal. That's the primary goal. The other goal of self-feeding, that's more of a therapeutic thing or a classroom teacher thing and self-help on the IEP, um, something the OT can work on with them or, you know, the classroom teacher can. But our main concern really lies in the safety first and then the the other area. So who are the people? And who, the people on the school-based team typically are the SLP, the OT, the PT, the school nurse, the classroom teacher the paraprofessional, uh, the, the school administrator, such as the principal, a cafeteria manager, and then, of course, the parents. Okay. I'm just imagining the principal that I worked with in her three-piece suit with her fancy watches doing feeding therapy. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that's a visual that doesn't happen, okay? <laughs> I know, but it's just, I, I remember what time, oh, yeah, okay. They need to be aware of the students on their campus that have swallowing and feeding problems. And they need to know what the situations are and what the recommendations are so that they can support the staff as well as the parents when they come in, they know what's happening. So that you need the administrator as part of the team in a different way than the others are you know, part of the team. For instance, the, the cafeteria manager, they're part of the team because they have to go through that monthly menu 
and take out the foods that can't be modified and substitute the one substitute them with ones that can. So that's their role. They also some of the cafeteria workers, it depends on the district. Sometimes the cafeteria workers are trained to modify the diet. Other times it's your classroom staff that does it. So that just depends. So the teams will look a little different in each school, but we we always encourage a team approach. The last thing I would want is an SLP to go swallowing and feeding on their own. Okay. So then, so then my next question, um, you, you get everybody there. Okay. Two questions backtrack. What about if the child has severe allergies and they're on, like, if they have a modified diet, but they also have the severe allergies like dairy, soy free, is the school district responsible for modifying that, especially if they um, are on the free and reduced lunch program? Yeah. If they get a school lunch, if they get the school lunch, then the, the lunch program is responsible for that. So they have a milk protein allergy. The school cafeteria people will work with them to provide the appropriate diet. If they have diabetes, they'll, they'll do the same thing. So yes, absolutely. Now, if, the, if they bring their lunch from home, then the, the school lunch program does not have that responsibility, okay? But if they purchase or get the school lunch, then the, school, the cafeteria program has that responsibility. And they, they need to get that form signed in order to make those changes. The one that you were talking about at the start. Okay. Yeah. We're, do you have examples that are readily available? How do people get copies of these, uh, of the, how to start this component, like the documentation? Um, okay. So what I have is what I call the students eat safely, swallowing and feeding procedure. Okay. I'm sorry. Students eat safely, follow the forms procedure. Because with each step of the procedure, there's an accompanying form. Okay. And so when you go through the entire procedure, you have all this great documentation of what you did. Okay. So that's what I really advocate for people doing. And that's what I share. Um, so yeah, if somebody wants the procedure, if a public school SLP would like, or a district would like the procedure and like the forms, all they have to do is go to my website and hit contact and send me an email and, uh, tell me what they want and I'll send it to them. And, uh, there's, there's no, they can adapt them how they need to, they can put their district name on it, whatever. Um, so is, are you okay if I give out your email, your website address really quick? Oh, sure. Okay, folks, it is emilymhomer.com, E-M-I-L-Y-M-H-O-M-E-R.com. And I had that up so quickly because while you were talking and I was geeking out, I was forwarding it to some of my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, and and on her website, she's got um, publications, a blog, and um, some of her lectures, workshops, and seminars um, that are available. Okay, so tell me again, um, it is safe, kids eat safe, is that what you called it? Students, students eat safely, follow the forms procedure. Students eat safely, follow the forms procedure. Yeah, so students eat safely, colon, follow the forms procedure. Okay. Um, well, when you see an email from me, um, you'll know why. <laughs> okay. 
All right. So I have to be respective of our time. Um, and we have 10 minutes left before we have to switch over to Q&A. So lay on me your hearts, your worries, your um, do this, don't do this. If I could go back 10 years ago and have done this different, this is what I would have done different when I started. What do you, what do you enlighten us with your wisdom? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think what I would like to share is that this procedure has been done for 23 years and Uh, successfully, and that I've shared it all over this country. So it is something that if people are struggling with this, that will help give them a tool to get started and something they can take to their superintendent, their supervisors and say, here's the problem, but here's how we can do it. And I think there's some real power in in being ready. Uh, The other thing is that if they're a school-based therapist or if you have friends that are school-based therapists, you know, to approach their administration should be done as a team. Uh, SLP, OT, nurses, PTs, go to the superintendent, the supervisor of special ed together and say, this is a problem that we can solve, but it needs to be addressed. So that's one thing I would want to say. Um, So the other thing that I would uh, really want to stress is that sometimes that transition from early intervention to the public schools can be unpleasant or difficult. And I think one of the things uh, we had our biggest success making the transition when we really worked together and communicated with the early intervention therapist. Uh, So uh, initially, you know, our zero to three therapists weren't really aware of the difference in the services and the responsibilities that we have in the public school setting um, compared to the zero to three. It is different. Um, In the zero to three, you have direct and constant access to parents. Um, District SLPs often have a difficult time getting parents in or talking to them and getting them to, you know, buy into the service. So, So that's a big difference. The typical therapy model in in the EI setting is often one-on-one. When the students start school, they may receive their services actually in a classroom with other children, or they may be pulled out, but may be pulled out with one or two other children in a small group. The therapist may believe that that's the most appropriate way to serve them. So to understand the difference in those two settings, I think, is very important. And once we communicated with one another, it, the transition often went much better. Um, our One of our obligations that I think I mentioned before was that we're responsible for the child's nutrition and hydration during the course of a day. The early intervention therapists are not responsible for that. No, so we're not. Yeah. So the school districts have a huge responsibility before you even talk about feeding therapy or anything like that. We have to get those children safe to eat all day at school. Uh, So that really is uh, just a different responsibility. So to recognize that there is a difference, that one is not inherently better than the other because they're different settings, different age children and that. So that would be one thing that I would really like to stress. And the other thing that um, 
I felt uh, that um, was helpful for us in the school system and would be helpful in any setting really would be, you know, asking the question, what is best for the student? And if you I feel can, like that gets messed. Yes. If you can answer that honestly, then you're on the right track. So, um, and, and honestly, oftentimes working together is, is what's best for the student, whether it's with other uh, service providers or with the parents or with the classroom staff, you know, working together is, is almost always best for children. Yeah. But I mean, I really truthfully, I feel like sometimes we get so hung up in what we want for the kids yes. and where we think they should go and what services we think that um, we forget that, you know, they do have a say in the matter. Mm-hmm. And, um, or I have also seen where we as professionals push, 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 and we lose track of where the parents are. Yes. Um, I mean, I've got one little guy that I know we could do X, Y, and Z, but because of everything else that's going on in his world, family's just not there yet. And I personally have to slow my pace. And I like to think I'm better than I was 10 years ago, but patience is still a virtue I am working on. <laughs> so like, I'll let you know when I have made it. I don't foresee that in the immediate future. Well, I, I think you bring up a good point. I, I have to tell you that uh, the parent interview is our very second step after the mm-hmm. referral. So once we complete a referral and a, a student has the signs and symptoms of swallowing, then we contact the parents and start working directly with them. Because I agree with you, I think that's extremely important. And feeding uh, their child is such a personal and important thing that we have to be so careful how we approach them with that. Okay. Now I have a question. Okay. And this is, I'm sure, personal. What made you take this on? This was a huge monumental change that you have embraced and advocated for. And okay. what what was what was what was your tipping point, so to speak? Well, you know, my story is I was in the field 43 years. You know what that means? There was no dysphagia when I went to school. Uh-huh. That, was not, that was not in the coursework. Um, I like to say they were just starting to work on language. That's how how long I've been in this field. Um, So in in 1995, uh, I had a what I guess you would call a late in life baby. Mm -hmm. I was 43, and I already had two daughters by the same husband that were 11 and 16. And so uh, I took a sabbatical that year, and during my sabbatical, I worked uh, with. some home health cases. And the therapist working with me wanted me to do swallowing. I said, I don't know anything about it. So I went to a, a Jerry Logeman conference. Now, oh this my was- gosh, you got to see her live. Oh yeah. And I went oh. to, it was in 95. So uh, when I was at that uh, conference, um, you know, I learned a lot about what it was. I still wasn't qualified to work on it. But my question was, who's doing this in the schools? There must be people with these children with these issues. So when I got back to work, um, there there were thing, three things happened that first semester that made it clear that uh, this was something we needed to do. So we formed a committee and we started. 
once we started, we realized how good it was. And uh, then I went to another Jerry Logeman conference. And at the intermission, I went up and I told her that we had formed a committee, we were starting this team and this procedure. And that was right around um, uh, the time that she was doing the public school forum, LSHSS's forum on swallowing in schools. And she asked us if we would write an article about what we were doing, about our, our attempts to organize and get a procedure going. So that really was the beginning of it. And, and once that was published, I think it's the um, uh, January 2000 issue of LSHSS. And it's all about swallowing in the schools. And it has an article by our, one of our, from our committee. And so after that, and things started getting successful, and, and you know, people would uh, ask me about it. And it just turned out this way. <laughs> I don't know. I took a lot of courses because I was interested in, you know, knowing what I was talking about. I thought that was important. But yeah, but that's just, <laughs> I took a lot of courses to learn. That's how I started my courses because I yeah. couldn't find the information that I needed. So I researched it and then built it. And that's, that's just so cool. Well, I am um, just in in awe and humbled and grateful. And so thank you. Um, thank you for making our world a better place because, I mean, my gosh. So everybody out there, when you hear me say, put your big girl britches on and like be the source of change, like she did it. We can do it. We're fine. <laughs> oh, there's many therapists doing that right now. Yes. Really um, making it happen in their districts. That's, a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. So we, we've had, um, uh, I had, um, Dr. Kate Toomey on a couple months ago and mm. she gave like really good advice on how to start with the grassroots efforts and be, um, like the three degrees of change instead of like the six degrees of change. And like, it just, we Whoa. need that. We need that. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you very much um for um uh your time today let me switch us over to questions really quick okay okay so feeding matters is having their annual conference and this time it's completely online friday january 24th and saturday january 25th and i want to highlight some of the amazing lecture opportunities that will be featured this year to start with our opening lecture, our keynote speech is called Development of Pediatric Feeding Disorder Screening Instruments for Infants and Children with Dr. Alan Silverman and Dr. Julie Kramer. In this lecture, they're going to talk about not only the prevalence of children in the U.S. that have severe pediatric feeding disorders, but also this new cutting-edge tool, a screening tool that they have developed to use for infants and children up to four years of age. It's it's going to be dynamite. So I hope to see y'all there on Friday, January 24th from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And by see you there, we will all be online, baby. Talk soon. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, 
be kind and feed those babies. <laughs>